Hi everyone, welcome to The Superficial Spirit, where we explore how pop culture affects our spiritual experiences. My name is Peter Breeze. Join me while we ask a very important question. What the hell did pop culture do to me? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Superficial Spirit. Thanks so much for joining me today. I wanted to start today's episode with a little preface because, oh my God, I'm wheezing. Can you hear that? Oh my God, I just went for a run. Clearly, I'm out of shape. Anyway, um, I just wanted to start today's episode with a little preface. I know that a lot of my listeners are sober or sober curious. Uh, It's something I've talked about on the show before. And today I'm going to be talking about a podcast in which they were exploring the medicinal effects of MDMA. (coughs) And the reason why I want to preface this is because if you were to ask me when I first started this podcast about whether or not psychedelics were the same as somebody doing, say, cocaine or drinking or indulging in another, I guess, quote unquote, party drug, I would have been more on the fence or I would have felt like there is a separation. You can be sober sober and in recovery and experience psychedelics and it, it can be okay. Like you can have these isolated spiritual or healing experiences that may actually enhance your sobriety and your recovery. Uh, my experience was when I did ayahuasca, I was sober from everything, 100% abstinent, have been for a few years. And I did ayahuasca and it felt very profound. It was very intense. And, you know, when I was finished my weekend retreat, I really didn't have a desire to do it again because it was so intense. So for me, it definitely didn't um, trigger anything other than you stay up all night. And that was something that I was worried about because the only time I ever stayed up all night was when I was partying and it had been so long since I had done that. So that did make me nervous. But, you know, not sleeping for a night because you're doing ayahuasca um, was manageable for me. But it's something you might want to consider if, um, you know, you're in recovery and you're, you're considering going to experience something like that. At the retreat that I went to, I also did mushrooms. It was part of the experience. I didn't like the mushrooms as much just because I found it a little bit too introspective. It reminded me of pot. I don't like pot. I do use CBD, but, you know, the mushrooms, I think, were just a little bit too much. However, now I microdose mushrooms. Um not every day. I don't use it therapeutically, but I do take one microdose pill, which is like one-tenth of whatever, a very, very small dose when I'm going out socially to make, you know, to give me a little boost of energy if I feel like I want that. It's really nice. And again, don't feel like that triggers me at all. doesn't make me feel like I want to get fucked up. doesn't make me feel like I want to party. It doesn't bring out a compulsive nature. Nothing. MDMA. Okay, MDMA is in this very 
interesting zone because it falls into two categories, a drug that people do to party and have fun, and also a psychedelic type of drug that they're exploring as a healing property. And I think that it's a unique drug in the sense that a lot of people in recovery or people who are sober sober will have experiences with MDMA in one in one type of um in one type of environment, which is typically people want to party, have fun, dance, let loose, whatever. MDMA traditionally has been attached to raving, nightlife. And so to hear that it has medicinal properties, potentially, is exciting. You know, it's like, wow, a drug that can feel so euphoric. You know, I definitely see why the healing opportunity is there, but I'm also a little bit nervous because it is attached to a certain type of experience that for some people, and I'm included, that have a long history of partying in a certain kind of way in the clubs and stuff, may find it hard to differentiate doing MDMA in a healing way and doing MDMA socially. To be completely transparent with you, I have done MDMA um, on my sober journey in moderation, very, very, very small amount with some friends. Again, as an exploratory thing, is this something that I can do? And to be honest, again, it didn't trigger this compulsive nature. I didn't feel like I wanted to do more and more and more, but I also didn't really like it. I find it to be a really overwhelming experience and I don't like being overwhelmed by sensations like that. Um, it didn't really make me chatty. It didn't make me want to open up. It just made me feel really, really high and it wasn't something that I wanted to repeat, similar to ayahuasca. So I was happy to know that, that I tried it, but I sort of left it where it was. Doesn't mean I'll never maybe explore that again, but definitely is in a different category for me. So on today's show, Jess and I are, are talking about this podcast. It's called Cover Story. It's by New York Magazine. And in their first season, they did um, an exploration of ayahuasca retreats and some problematic behavior that was happening there. And in season two that just came out, they're exploring these MDMA trials and sort of the potentially problematic behavior that's been happening with some of the researchers and the effect that it's had on some of the participants. And I felt a kind of way after reading it, um, sorry, not reading it, listening to it. And I mean, I'll get into it when I talk to Jess, but basically I felt like the podcasters are really trying to uncover problematic behavior that may or may not be there or that potentially they had not spoken to enough of the participants or perhaps there hasn't been enough trials to really get a good grasp on what MDMA could or could not do for people. And also, you know, there there's a lot of touching that happens both in these therapy sessions and also when you're on MDMA. So I felt like when they're like, you know, oh, these people were on MDMA and the therapist was touching their leg. And I'm like, have you ever been on MDMA? That is literally what you do. You dance and you fucking touch each other and you feel each other's face and pet your hair. And, you know, you end up in a cuddle puddle in the, in the corner. So I feel like with these psychedelic experiences, we have to leave some room for what the drug does to the human body and what the what um, impulses arise. Now, that doesn't mean that whoever is taking people on the journey or the healing session has free range to follow every impulse that comes into their body or their mind. Obviously not. But we are exploring a completely 
innovative way for folks to heal trauma. We're dealing with mind-altering substances. And so we're going to have to really explore what the line is between appropriate and non-appropriate. And we're very much still in that discovery phase. So whereas the podcast that focused on ayahuasca, I, I felt very strongly that they, they had a strong case because with the ayahuasca retreats, you are trusting people who are claiming to be shamans, right? And they're supposed to be taking you in this healing experience, uncovering this trauma that you can't heal in your life, and hopefully integrating, helping you integrate that into, into the rest of your life. You're going outside of Western medicine, outside of Western philosophies to explore this experience that could potentially transform your life. Okay. And we're trusting people to take us down this journey. MDMA and the scientists and the therapists that are doing this are not claiming that it's a spiritual experience and they're not tying spirituality to it, at least in this podcast. I'm sure there are people out there who would say that there is a spiritual quality to the MDMA experience, but I think at least for me at, at this point in my exposure to hearing about the um, experiments, for lack of a better word, is that ayahuasca is very much sold as a spiritual experience, whereas MDMA is more of a clinical and therapy type experience. So they are kind of separate. Um, but still, the people who are taking folks down this path do need to have some type of regulation. There needs to be some clear boundaries so that when you are high out of your mind in a doctor's office, you have already decided what you're okay with and what you aren't. Um, yeah, I just wanted to preface that. And also, and also, this is the other thing. If you are sober, or if you're curious about sobriety, or even if you're not sober, but you have a history with excessive drug or drinking, I would really caution you if you are going to be exploring these avenues, because while I felt like I was able to experience and sort of come out and it was kind of a benign experience, it, it was great, it was fun, sure, I got some insight, but honestly, I don't feel like it changed me forever, and I don't think I would be going back to those um spaces for anything else i do know people who have tried and it's gone really really bad it did open the door for other problematic behaviors to come in and it doesn't happen overnight you know going to one ayahuasca retreat may not open that going to one ayahuasca retreat may not open the doors of addiction right away but you are going into an altered state and it could potentially trigger something inside of you so i would just really 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 use caution especially with mdma that is probably linked to certain experiences in your life that definitely weren't intended to be healing um just proceed with caution i have a couple episodes coming up that are going to be based around sobriety spirituality pop culture um and how we are informed about substances and stuff like that so i just want to make sure that we are all clear if you are going to be triggered by talk spit oh my god if you're going to be triggered by conversations about mdma um then maybe skip to the next episode but thanks so much for tuning in. I was really, I was really fired up for this. So I hope that you like it. Uh, this is my conversation with Jess, exploring the podcast cover story that dives into the clinical trials they're doing about the healing properties of MDMA.
That's not okay. Before. We're just going to have to go with it's it. Good. It's fine. And I'm going to try really hard to talk normally because I'm really fired up about this topic. Okay. And <laughs> I'm going to start with the name of the goddamn podcast that I find so confusing. Wow, you're so fired up, man. <laughs> I find every time I reference this podcast, I'm like, what is it called? Is it called New Yorker? Is it right. called Cover Story? Because when you open I have no idea. Spotify, exactly. It's like, it says New Yorker when you look at it, but then it's like Cover Story. And then like, uh, even in smaller letters, it's Power Trip. So right. I, I think they could have done a better job um, of marketing that or streamlining. Anyway, that's fine. You and I have talked about this podcast before. Right. Mm-hmm. And the first part of the podcast was focused on ayahuasca trips and shady uh quote-unquote shamans right Mm -hmm. lots of sexual assault allegations and just sort of like the people that they were investigating were doubling down like when they were being confronted they were like nope this is all part of the process and if anybody's experiencing trauma it's their own fault basically right you know victim blame you Exactly. Really liked the first part. I thought it was great. Um, you and I had a great conversation about our own experiences with ayahuasca and those places. And I feel like that's a huge part of the conversation that's happening right now with people in the new age world. Ayahuasca retreats, psychedelics. Yeah. Um, we were talking about it. even even removing the element of psychedelics in that first half of the podcast. It's just like all the problems that are happening in like new age when you go to a new age psychic or counselor or whatever thought leader. Um, all the same type of like spiritual bypassing, um, victim blaming. So that's why I really did enjoy the first half. Cause it's like, wow, like this is just happening everywhere in this like quote, new age spiritual community, even again, removing the psychedelics from it. Totally. So when you posted on Instagram that there was a, Part two, which I didn't even realize. I was so excited because I didn't know, what are they going to talk about? Like, what? Right. where could this go? And I was even more excited when I realized it was MDMA. Like, <laughs> oh, Lordy, it's something that I know near and dear to my heart. Not really, but something I've done a lot. You probably I think you know much. a little bit more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> I was excited to hear about where they were going to take this. And... I had a feeling that they would be sort of critical about whatever it was, because that's the point of these investigative podcasts. I mean, nobody does an investigative podcast to uncover beautiful things. They do it because they want to find the problem. So I went into it with that open mind. And just to preface, I have... mm -hmm. No, maybe you're going to get to this, but um, I was going to ask you like, yeah, like tell me your viewpoint of MDMA. Um, because I think mm-hmm. you experienced it. And then I have like maybe yeah. a different viewpoint because I I don't think I did it. Maybe I did it once when I was 20. Is it the same thing as ecstasy? So yeah, tell me um, your background with your knowledge on this. So I'm on MDMA right now. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so my experience with MDMA is that I was a club kid and I've done it a lot. That's pretty much that. But I will say that, you know, there are a lot of party drugs that people do, cocaine, ketamine, ecstasy, MDMA. Um, 
I think those are the main ones, meth, but that's more, that's not more of a, I think that's a less common one that you would encounter in like the club scene. MDMA was super popular. I actually didn't prefer doing MDMA because it is so intense and it's incredibly euphoric. So the first time I did ecstasy and ecstasy and MDMA are pretty much the same high, but ecstasy is more in reference to a pressed tab. Like usually they're colored pills and they're typically laced with um, speed, cocaine, meth. So you get the euphoria, but it's also super speedy. So you're like dance all night at the rave and like you want to go to the next party. Whereas true MDMA from my experience, like when you bite at the club, they're like, it's pure, it's pure. And then you do it and it's pure euphoria. So you would basically like when I did it, I would be at a club, I would do it. And then I would have to go find somewhere to sit down mm-hmm. because it was so overwhelming. It felt so good. But it was like my eyes would roll back and I couldn't talk and I couldn't walk. And that would last for like maybe half an hour or an hour. And then after that, you get more social and you slowly start to dance and, you know, the high balances out a little bit more. Um, But I, when I was partying a lot, liked that, like when you do cocaine, it's like, which was what I preferred to do. Oh God, I can't believe I'm saying that, whatever. Um, No secret. Uh, I liked it because it was, it, it's still intense, but it's shorter high. So you could like do a bump, have some drinks and like be super engaging in a conversation, but you wouldn't necessarily be up all night. Like you could go home. Whereas MDMA, I always felt like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be so fucking high. I'm not going to be able to talk to anybody. And then it's going to last for so long. So I didn't really like doing it. Um, in the moment, it's always nice. But um, it always tend to last more. So that's sort of like the high. Now, when you get into like how it affects how you interact with people, you're basically in love with everybody. I mean, you meet a complete stranger and you're like, you are so beautiful. Look at your hair. You have the nicest skin. Oh, my God. And you just sort of like are in this loving embrace with literally everybody and everything around you. Mm -hmm. And... It's great. I mean, when you're a club kid and you're just at a rave, who doesn't want to feel like that? But I think it becomes a little bit stranger. Like if you are at an after party, for example, can you just hang on one second? Yeah. What is that noise? What is that? Turn it off. God damn it. Go away! I'm trying to be a podcaster. I'm so sorry. I'm this making, is Jess, I'm making a soup. And it's, it's Wait, you're always blending something. <laughs> you're always blending something. I know. I know. I'm, I'm <laughs> a meeting. It's not a meeting. It's a fucking god damn it. Do you want me to be on? Go away! <laughs> Jesus Christ! I can't even see him. Y'all are like so pixelated on my end. Okay. Okay, anyway, so MDMA, it can be really fun. But if you, like, this is this is the other step. If you are at an after party, let's say you do it after the club, and you're at somebody's mm-hmm. house, and a bunch of people are high on MDA, you do a cuddle puddle. Everybody's in bed or on the floor or on a couch, and you're just kind of, like, all, like, rubbing and massaging. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily sexual, just, like, it feels so good to, like, pinch your skin and, like, rub your skin and... So it, it really, 
creates a, a need and desire to connect emotionally and physically with the world around you. So when people are talking about how this can be great for, like when I heard MDMA can be used for PTSD, made perfect sense to me because all of your guards go down and not only that, you are filled, your brain shoots so much serotonin into your body that you could talk about anything and it would be like, right. no matter. Do you think it's like a temporary thing though? Like, yes, actually like long-term where you would have to like long-term always do it to be happy. Well, okay. So I think like, let's say you were in love with your best friend and you, this is a dark secret. Well, not a dark, it's a secret. You never wanted to bring it up because you have such a great friendship and you're a little bit worried about what would happen if they found out. And then one night, everybody does MDMA and you're on the dance floor and in a moment of inspiration, the good song is on, you tell your best friend, you know what, I got to tell you, I think you're fucking sexy and I've loved you or liked you for so long. And your best friend is also high in MDMA. They're like, oh my God, I had no idea. And maybe you kiss and then the moment passes and like the next day will will that moment last? Well, maybe it's a good thing or a bad thing that you got the secret out. You were able to express yourself. But from my experience, what happens when you're high does not translate to what is what will happen when you're sober and in your day-to-day -day life. So in terms of therapy, like if somebody is going to be pursuing this as a uh, way to treat trauma i do think it's possible to probably get to the point of pain easier and faster mm -hmm. i have no idea what the process would be to integrate that because the other thing about mdma that they don't really talk about on the podcast is the come down one because you're mm -hmm. so high and then you fucking crash the other thing is your your body is depleted of serotonin for like at least a week so most people who party and do mdma will be depressed for like three to five days. Yeah, so, so this doesn't really sound <laughs> like the healthiest <laughs> thing unless you keep doing it. But, okay, so my side, I don't have much experience in drugs. Um, I think the D.A.R.E. program worked on me when I was young. I'm dating myself right now. <laughs> um, yeah, in my 20s when I was at the club, I was just, you know, alcohol was my drug of choice. I think once or twice I tried ecstasy, but I, I have no idea if it was that or what it was. Um, and only because like my good friend, she doesn't do drugs either, but she decided it was a good idea for those couple nights. So I did it with her. Right. Um, and <laughs> I have like, I don't know. I don't think drugs quote work on me because whatever that was, like, I just always get like, kind of like scared and like paranoid with anything I take right my only memory of that is like colors kind of like swirled all over as people pass by and I was just like where's my purse and I just stayed in the corner all night guarding me and my friend's purses while she was like running around <laughs> so I didn't have like the best experience I was like I don't know that kind of sucked and I was just like scared because I think I'm like scared of just like losing my mind what if I like end up somewhere I don't know of so I just like try to control um yeah same thing like the few times I've ever tried to like smoke weed um 
I just get like really weird and it's gonna be like really funny but I always feel like oh my god am I gonna pee in my pants so I'm like <laughs> I'm like I can't feel my whole body I don't know what's happening am I peeing am I not and then what I did ayahuasca which wasn't for because I'm like kind of almost like anti-drugs like I don't want to do them I don't really like to be around people doing a lot of drugs but ayahuasca was to me when I was going to that you know, a medicine for me to like connect with whatever my higher self spiritually, but like kind of like same reaction. Like I was the whole time I was just like, am I peeing in my pants? Like, I'm just, like <laughs> anytime I do drugs, I'm like, did I lose control of my body? And then I just have like this horrible experience. So that's my history <laughs> of drug use and like, you know, doing anything like that. And it's always kind of been a quote, bad experience for me and just like this sucks like why do people like doing this yeah. it's awful to yeah. me because i'm so scared of being like out of control yeah. um which i guess people can argue that's a bad thing you have to like let go of control oh to me about um pot i don't like pot it makes you super paranoid so i'm not scared of peeing my pants like you are but i do get really <laughs> really in my head about what am I, like, what are they, like, just, anyways, paranoia. Um, yeah. Classic case. Um, but he says, you know, it's, maybe you need to sit with that, you know, maybe you need to do, like, smoke a joint and just, like, see what uncomfortable thoughts come up, blah, blah, blah. Not, not, I've heard that song before, honey, and I'm not listening anymore. Yeah. But I think, th I think that's different socially. Um, somebody who's like, uh, okay, what am I trying to say? If you're using a drug, to deal with uncomfortable feelings, I can understand the argument. Maybe that's what the point of this is, is for you to go to that uncomfortable place. So let's, let's talk about the podcast now, because okay. I feel like, first of all, don't like the new, two new hosts. So irritating. One of the girls was talking, I just, every, I don't know. And I've been a really One of the women was the original women from the first half though. And I did what? like her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like okay. the I'm not going to talk about the house then. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it was just I was annoyed about the direction it was going, and then I started projecting that onto their voices. But my main concern or critique, I would say, is I felt like they were really trying to uncover problematic behavior in these MDMA trials. The, the podcast basically follows a few stories of people who were chosen to do MDMA trials. Um, they would go to three sessions. They all had severe PTSD. And this was a uh, test that uh, trial run that was basically governed by the FDA. And you have to really follow specific guidelines when you're doing psychedelic research so that, um, you know, the FDA can be like, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? So super controlled, um, super controlled, only a very limited number of sessions. And you had to be basically extremely traumatized to come into the sessions. Like they were dealing with um, people with extreme sexual assault. And I think, war veterans, et cetera, et cetera. So great. The setup was amazing. The stories were pretty um, scary. Like the people who had gone to MDMA treatments were desperate for change. Like they had tried everything. And through the course of the podcast, you basically hear that, yes, the drug had healing uh open the door for some healing and at least acknowledgement. Like they were able to talk about things, face things, 
Um, and through the sessions, maybe the trauma came up a little bit more and it was like going in the right direction. But then some questionable behavior was happening with the counselors and the sessions are only three sessions. So these people are saying that's not even close to being enough. And it was like, they opened me up and sent me out into the world. So my two thoughts were one, um, people, okay. Drug trials probably have folks who have negative reactions. That's the point of the trial to figure out what's going right and what's going wrong. So I wasn't necessarily shocked that some people felt um, that they had been cracked open. There was this sensation that they had been cracked open and they were sent out into the world because I know MDMA and I can imagine that's how it would feel. Um, And I think maybe they could have done a better job with these people who are um, participating and setting them up. Like this is what it's going to feel like afterwards. And then when they talked about the inappropriate behavior of the people, like the, 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 um, the clinicians would like get into bed with them and cuddle and like kiss them on the forehead. I was like, have you ever done MDMA? That's literally what people do. They get high and they cuddle each other. So I felt like it was a reach to be like, why, why is this being considered taboo or strange? And then I'm like, okay, wait, they're doctors, they're scientists, they're supposed to be objective, they're not supposed to be emotionally involved. But then I was like, wait a second, we're trying to heal emotional trauma. So does it make sense that they are doing these physical touch exercises within parameters to help heal someone who is scared of human touch? Then the person was like, I can't have people touch me. I can't have people hug me. It all freaks me out. So I was conflicted. I was like, obviously, you don't want somebody to feel like they're being um, put in an uncomfortable situation. But also, you're doing an MDA trial, MDMA trial to deal with extreme trauma um, and fear of human touch and intimacy. So is it beyond the realm of possibility that they would explore physical touch within these trials? And I guess like I would have wanted to see like what is in whatever paperwork they signed where the therapist could go as far as, okay, there might be some touching, which, you know, which would include hugs, holding, you know, in this trial, if needed, like sign off on this. So, you know, like what is everything that's included in the trial for the boundaries of the therapist? And yeah, I understand what you're saying about if you're on MDMA, you that's like the happy drug, right? You want to be touched, cuddle, everything. But the therapist isn't on MDMA. So yeah, they shouldn't cross that line of like cuddling and touching if those are the standard guidelines of being a therapist and not, you know, if it's against the law, maybe just in the US, I'm not so sure of like not crossing that boundary. Like those are some of the blurred lines. And I'm like, maybe yeah. they should include a therapy dog. <laughs> Um, But part of this is like we're exploring completely new and innovative ways to heal um, trauma that has not been able, we've not been able to do it. So is therapy. I actually really like physical touch in yoga class, adjustments, everything like that. Like I like it. So I think it is therapeutic, but yeah, it's like, what are those boundaries? Because it did sound like some of these therapists way like went way over you know any boundaries and getting into physical sexual relationships 
do you think that they did a good job of of uh, I don't want to say selling their story, but do you think they did a good job of building the case that these MDMA trials have been problematic? Um, not in regards to, I think they only interviewed like three people, right? Um, right. So it, it's really, it's really hard. I think they did explain that in like after, I don't know what the paperwork is called, like after the trial, like it did not include some of these problematic, problematic things that right. the podcast covered. Um, Cause they, which I don't know if they did a good job in explaining exactly what, but they said they got all the, the paperwork on it and it left a lot out. So, and then mm. it's just like, again, it's the judge to say what should be included, what what's not to be included Again, when you're conducting research and wanting a certain outcome, most often, you know, more often than not, people would leave out things that would um, look negative to the research if they're the one funding it. So I think that's a problem overall in this type of research. And then they were also talking about um, how you cannot have a placebo in this research. So it's not a true scientific study because it's impossible to have a placebo. This is such a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because I totally forgot. Um, yeah, so it, I do. All this is really messy, I think. Yeah. And this is, this is what in the first part of the podcast, when they were focused on the ayahuasca, this is what the psychedelic community was saying is um, it it helps more people than it hurts. And if you focus on the people who are saying this is not good, then there's going to be a lot of people who are missing out on a healing opportunity. So that was the, that was the pushback. It's like, yes, maybe, yes, maybe some people are having some unnice situations, but for the most part, this is the movement is more important than the individual kind of, it's basically what they were saying yeah. the last time. Like, these, like I don't think there's, so, sorry. I don't think there's huge problems with the drugs. It's the facilitators. It's whoever's coming up with the research and the guidelines within that. This is all the man-made stuff, right? Um, So I do think the drugs in circumstances could be helpful. And, and, and do we need, like, I guess what I'm thinking is we're really as a society, moving into new territory when it comes to considering psychedelics as therapy. We really, really are like, it's going to be really hard for a lot of people to wrap their brains around the fact that mushrooms and MDMA and ayahuasca could potentially help them because a lot of people are like, a drug is a drug is a drug is a drug. You know, like they still consider cannabis. It's like, Oh, I don't know. Like, I don't want to do drugs, even though it's legalized, even though we've proven that it can help people. So I guess, I guess part of me is like, in 50 years, we'll look back once all of the, because I do think psychedelics will get legalized. I do think there are so many benefits to it. And I think we'll look back at the trials and be like, we handled it not correctly. And we, we relied too much on influence from the psychedelic community. And we should have taken it completely over and, and handed it to another community to sort of test and, and really think it out. Because when you, you have people who are so passionate about it, who, who believe so strongly, it's gonna, 
it's going to make it hard to be objective. And the point about not being able to do a placebo is probably the most important and interesting part of this whole thing because you can't fake it. Yeah, so you can't I do like blind or double blind or whatever study if there's no placebo. There's no way to do it. So yeah, I I I didn't I, I wish they would have taken more time with this part of the episode um podcast and maybe done it over a year and really tried to get deeper into these studies. Because what about if the other 97 people that were part of this study, because there was only like a hundred, what if all of those people were like, This changed my life and it healed me one hundred percent? Right. And we didn't even hear about them. So so many things when I was listening to this reminded me of the ayahuasca retreat. I went to um so I was quote triggered by a lot of this <laughs> so although the retreat I went to wasn't a study um it definitely marketed itself as kind of being like a miracle place and ayahuasca being like three to five years of therapy right so so reminiscent of like some of these studies and like what their claims are that like just doing this over like whatever three times is like whatever 10 years of therapy um and some of the the things that sounded the same were that early in the second half of this podcast the subjects were saying that they pretty much did anything they could to get in because they were desperate to get into this study so if that means checking off the box saying that they're not on any other uh prescription drugs or not this or that in their background, like they'll kind of lie just to get in. And that's the same thing that happened, I believe, with this resort I went to, where it's like, they're believing the marketing that they'll be completely healed. So they're not checking off the box at saying like they have um, psychotic issues, or they're on this drug or that drug, because they want to get healed so bad that they'll lie to get in. And then problems do occur um and then yeah maybe they didn't get the best therapist for the mdma study or or didn't screen them enough right and then the ayahuasca resort i went to as well they keep claiming they have all these doctors and this therapist and then come to find out the therapist hasn't been licensed for like x amount of years and there's not really doctors there there's like a staff just in case you know you legit need like physical medical help um so it was so reminiscent um and then also to the point where I think in this MDMA study they I think they went for like three nights and they felt cracked open and they just needed to do more and that's how I felt where the resort I went to you do four nights of ayahuasca the first time I went we only did two nights of the specific type of ayahuasca and then two nights of a different type and I felt like the first two nights really quote cracked me open in a bad way where I'm like, I need to do more of this because a, I need to figure out how to like work with the quote medicine or drug more in my body. Like maybe I just didn't relax enough or this or do that. Like I need to experience this more to get my breakthrough to get my quote miracle that they were marketing. So I felt like I, I need more time. I need more time with this. And that's the same thing I heard in this podcast where they did it for three nights. They felt cracked open and then they didn't know what to do and what it meant. And it seemed like they did have like a nightmarish experience like I had on ayahuasca where it's like, well, what do I do with this? 
I need to talk to the spirit of this medicine, this drug more and figure out what it's trying to tell me because now I'm effing lost. And I feel like I'm getting emotional now because I felt like that. And then I paid another like whatever, $5,000 to go back to the resort and do like another three nights of that specific type of medicine. And to be honest, like I didn't have as nightmarish experiences, but I don't think I ever got my quote answer or whatever I was looking for from it. So would it be the same with MDMA? Okay. Like if they just keep doing more and more trials or tests or doing it with a therapist, are they ever really going to get what they're quote looking for? Like me, I was looking for whatever my miracle was, whatever that meant to me. Or is it just, you know, they say none of these things are addictive. I keep doing air quotes. Um, but I think it is an addictive experience to be like, I didn't get what I felt like I was promised. I didn't get, you know, all my traumas not removed. This didn't feel like 10 years of, um, therapy, I need to keep doing it. I need to keep doing it. So yes, they're not addictive, you know, in scientific qualities. Um, but the need to feel like you didn't get what you, what you were promised from it keeps you going back. And I just felt like this was again, the exact same experience that I saw just not being in a trial, but going to my ayahuasca retreat. And again, I know people that felt cracked open after that and then was in and out of hospitals with suicidal thoughts for years and that was supposed to be like 10 years of therapy doing ayahuasca so I worry about this MDMA experience for others so I'm really on the fence of um going back and forth of like yeah do drugs they'll help or like a big part of me also says like don't do that like just don't like just go to a therapist like it's not going to help from my experience I just got my piece out. So yeah, that was great. I think like the two things I was thinking about when you were talking is the first is we have to keep in mind that the people who are going into these trials are desperate. They want yeah. to change so bad. People who went to the resort worked. were desperate. So yeah, they yes. will try to get in any way they can. I know people who went to my resort lied about medication being yeah. on it or not. I lied. I lied about because you weren't supposed to like have a menstrual cycle while doing ayahuasca. And I lied because I'm like, my cycle changed and I just paid $5,000 to get to this retreat. I'm nothing doing it. $5,000 is so much money. Um, So desperate people will do desperate things. That's the first thing I'm thinking of. The second thing is there is a very big difference between somebody going to do these drugs because they want to become enlightened or they're searching for um, a theoretical heightened state or a miracle or something, but they can't quite quantify what that is. And somebody who's like, I was raped. I need to heal that. It's a very specific thing that I'm trying to tackle. And I want to use the medicine to do that. It's two very, I feel like it's two very different things. People who just want to be enlightened, you could keep going over and over and over and over and over again, because what does that even mean? What does that even right. mean to be enlightened? But then but at my resort, there was both at my resort. I was the one looking for enlightenment, but there were definitely people that were like, I have trauma. I want to like, you know, I've been on and off like mess my whole life. I'm trying to get off. Like there were definitely people looking for like that medical help from this too. But do you think that those people at least would be able to 
identify, okay, I know now that my trauma has been healed because I'm more functioning. I'm getting back to work. My relationships are stabilizing. My finances are stabilizing. I can see that the trauma is not taking the driver's seat anymore versus somebody who wants to be enlightened. And they're like, well, I seem happier. Well, I don't know. Am I aligned? Am I not? Do you see how one could be yeah, like, totally. a, a navigating journey and one could be? A lot of people had good experiences too, both seeking enlightenment and both going there with some sort of trauma or whatnot that they were looking to get healed. So I think you'll find yeah. like a mix of people on both spectrums. It's so interesting. Good, yeah. So I, everyone's I, different. I, so everyone's going to have like a good experience or a bad one. Like my mm-hmm. body, I think just like doesn't <laughs> like rejects drugs. It's like, you're just going to have to feel like you have to pee all the time and have a nightmare, you know, with like any drug I do. <laughs> Whereas other people, it, works out for them yeah it's always gonna be a mix it always is always gonna be a mix and i do think that there i personally don't feel like i've been healed by drugs necessarily uh i think that the experience of nightlife over 10 years and me feeling so free and like i could express myself and i was supported was healing but i actually think dependency on anything is i don't know people need medicine to live. So I guess that's not, it's not about dependency, but I I think there is something in psychedelics. I think it's about getting it right. And it's going to take a while to figure out how to use it in a true, true, truly, truly medicinal way. Um, Right. And that's what I think was bad about the trial. Like only having the three nights, like it should have definitely been way longer and like way more aftercare, which again, the resort I went to, they'll claim they had aftercare. They do not have aftercare. And it sounded like this trial did not have aftercare either. It was like, oh, you can continue seeing yeah, a therapist I mean, if like you want, if they let you. My... It was bad. It's bad. The Like when I did ayahuasca, I did feel like I had a profound experience. And then afterwards, like you just kind of go home and you're like, hey, what do I do? Like, what do I do with this information? Um so, yeah, so that's I do the think thing. Integration like, follow up is good. It's vital. Yeah, and everyone's getting that wrong. Like no one's doing that. Everyone's like, because here, the medicine probably helped you. Because they pay for the experience; they're not paying for the aftercare. That's why. Yeah, that's why people don't prioritize it. I think. But you know what, Jess? That's what me and you can do. It'll be called the superficial spirit aftercare, and we'll <laughs> open a retreat, and people can do drugs and then come and stay with us and be. <laughs> A lot of, um, quote, shamans I know that left the resort have started, like, aftercare programs because they saw how big of a miss that was. So people are trying to do that out there. Hopefully we learn from this, like, all of these crazy stories. Like I said, at some point in human history, probably in 25 years, we'll look back 25, 50 years and be like, man, remember when they were trying to figure out psychedelics? That was pretty crazy. <laughs> and then, and then yeah. it'll be like... Your doctor would just be, you know, maybe you need some MDMA to help with your depression or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, I've, I still am optimistic. I still am optimistic. Yeah. I feel truly for the people who've suffered during the trials because it sucks. But, um, and this is like for my podcast in general, I do want to make sure that with every critical look, we're, we're also giving space to people who are like, no, I had a good fucking time. It helped me. Yeah. It healed me. And I feel good about it because- there are two sides and we don't get sucked too much into the black void of bullshit that is already the planet. 
Oh my god, what a great bitch fest. <laughs> Anything else you want to add? I think I got it all out, but that, that felt really good. And yeah, I'm excited about that. Peace.